Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to another hour of science. I know it's Easter Sunday, but uh, we just can't stop uh, pumping science out, even on these weird public holidays. Chris KP is in the studio with me. Good morning, sir. Hello. How are you? I'm good, actually. What's going on in your world? I had uh, the most delightful Bit of drive in today, insofar as it, the, the wind's up a little bit. It's a bit breezy. Oh, yeah. It's autumn, and there were yellow autumn leaves all over the road being blown up. Oh, yeah. And so, as so we're driving through, I had the most childlike experience. I suspect I was driving very poorly, but it was the most <laughs> delightful way to, to enter, you know, another part of, uh, of Melbourne. Anyway, I, fine. I went for a swim this morning <laughs> at the local leisure centre, and, you know, they've got one of those really superheated pools for people who don't want to do much, like, real full on activity. I like it. Just chill out. Yep. And then for a brief moment, I went and got in the less heated pool, uh-huh. and I was like, this is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but then you come back, and when you come back, it feels pretty special. So, so this is making yourself miserable in order to feel particularly good when you're actually just somewhere that's okay. Yeah, pretty much. Genius. <laughs> Genius. So that's got it. Now, on the line, we've got uh, Dr. Lauren. Good morning, madam. Good morning. Good morning. I um, I was just having a think about childlike joy. My, my kids actually gave me the opposite experience this morning. <laughs> it was science side of things though we did the easter egg hunt and and there was a lot of debate about how much an egg that's wrapped in gold is compared to one that's wrapped in blue foil so there was a lot of you know a lot of discussion a lot of debate this morning with the easter egg hunt yeah wow (laughs) well you know i'm sure there's i'm sure there's something in that depending on the brand that's it that's it i think they they actually may have had a point to be honest yeah (laughs) yeah i'm trying not to hit the eggs too hard uh, you know, cutting back after a discussion with my GP during the week. Yeah. <laughs> I know, there's this word, cholesterol. Uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, we've got, uh, we've got some news coming up for you folks, and then we've got uh, a guest uh, who's going to be in the studio a little bit later. We're going to be talking about some really interesting thing from the Flory Institute. And uh, then Chris KP and I have got some stuff to tell you that's, well, let's say it's very important out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> but let's start off with some news. Dr. Lauren, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I saw a new study that came out this week in Nature, which many of you might have seen as well, basically coming back to this controversial question of where did we come from? Hmm. And so the evolution of humans is still unknown. We don't really know which part of the globe we came. We know that it was around 300,000 years ago. This is when Homo sapiens uh, evolved from the previous species of humans. But this new study actually suggests that it might have been a single region in the south of Africa, which is where that evolution happened. And the way that they did it was really cool. So obviously, we know that um, we're able to look at fossils. So we can look at the ancient human bones. We can also look at the tools that are available in certain areas. And a new technique that came out last year is we can actually look at DNA in the soil. So you can actually look at the sediment within a cave, for example, to work out which species of human was in a particular area. But what we haven't really known is what human movement would have been over that time. And so this study that was published looked at um, using a computer model to simulate climate history back over the last 2 million years. And the, the model that they use is actually the same that's now used for climate change predictions at the moment. Obviously, climate change back then was quite different to the reasons it happens now. So, you know, the the cavemen weren't driving cars or or burning fossil fuels. Uh, It was more to do with the um, the movement of actually uh, the planets and celestial objects. And so getting a little bit technical here, these are theories called the Milankovitch cycles, which are basically to do with gravitational pulls of the planets and the fact that as the Earth um, planet orbits the sun, it's actually not a perfect circle. So we're able to simulate what the climate would have been at any particular time based on where we think the planets were. And so this was um, really interesting studies. They basically did this. They looked at what they thought that was happening in the climate at any particular time. And then they mapped that based on fossil uh, evidence. So they looked at the fossils that they'd found and also tools and they overlaid the maps so they knew what the climate was, what they found in terms of fossils, 
And then they also looked at other physical evidence such as the ice um, that you know you can get from drilling into polar ice sheets to have a look at the climate for that as well. And all of that data together basically showed them that there's a particular part in the South of Africa, which is where this, this um, evolution probably happened. One of the other really cool things with this is um, it was sort of basically taking over 3,000 archaeological discoveries from diff- six different species. So it was sort of looking at people and, you know, humanoid species from a, a, a long amount of time. Um, but the trick with that is we don't know that we've actually found everything. So one of the big criticisms of this study is it might just be that we found fossils in that particular part of Africa mm. that are existing in other points, parts of Africa. So that yeah. was a very interesting point. Yeah, super interesting stuff. Now, Dr. Lauren, I'm going to leave you be there for a minute because uh, we're going to see if we can get Nancy Baxter from the School of uh, Population Global Health from Melbourne Uni on the line. I think she might be on that other Zoom call. So um, we might come back to you a little bit later in the show. But thanks for that. Interesting uh, piece of history, God. You wonder if we're ever going to work this out. It's a tough one. It is a tough one. Three Triple R. Now, we weren't sure whether we'd have her on the line, but I've got Professor Nancy Baxter from the Melbourne School of Population Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Nancy. Welcome back on the show. Good morning. Now, we, uh, we checked in with you, I think it must have been December, early January, with regards to how we were going with the pandemic. And, you know, I thought it'd be good for us to just touch base again because a lot's changing at the moment. We've hit the, we've, you know, we've managed to crawl through the first term of school. I think um, some better than others, but, you know, some schools and some teachers have really struggled. And of course, our, our, some of our daycare workers and staff don't have a term break. You know, that's nonstop. So it's even harder for them. But what's your assessment of the so the situation at the moment, where where are we? We still seem to have a very large number of COVID cases every every day. We have, you know, we're, we're what's the equivalent? Crashing buses or planes every week in terms of deaths across the country. It's pretty substantial. What, what's your take on things? There's, as you said, there's still a lot of transmission right now. That's for a few reasons. You know, we had our, our crest of our first Omicron wave that came down, but then we started relaxing restrictions right at the time that the new new subvariant came around, BA2. Um, uh, and so you had that, you had school going back, and, and that led to, you know, a second uh, crest of the wave. Um, that has finally seemed to, and we finally seem to come to the top of that, of that wave now. We're now seeing, you know, uh, effective reproductive numbers under one for uh, all states in Australia. So um, I think we're finally coming to the other side of that. But with really all restrictions being lifted uh, and likely a bump in cases related to um, Easter, I think what we're going to see is a, is a pretty high plateau of cases where we're just going to have you know, a chronically high number of cases every day, similar to the UK after Freedom Day, mm-hmm. when they really never got a break. Um, there's just like a constant, persistent high number of cases high number of hospitalizations, uh, and high number of deaths. I remember one of the points you made when we last spoke, which really stuck with me, is there's this focus on the peak, but, you know, like, there's a lot on the other side of that. You know, there's, and and as you say, we seem to be plateauing it around, even in Melbourne, you know, Victoria, around 10,000 cases a day. I mean, there was a day when we were freaking out over 200 cases a day. Um, 10,000 is a pretty big number. Is Is this something that, we're sort of just going to have to learn to live with as a baseline now? Is that the is that the plan? Because the hospital numbers do seem to be sort of still creeping up a little. I know there's a bit of a delay there, but they're, they're still substantial. Yeah. Well, the narrative is that, you know, we're now getting to a COVID normal. We're now living with COVID. Um, but, but I think that what needs to sink in is if we allow this much transmission to happen, if we allow this much COVID to be in circulation, you know, we're looking at, you know, with this rate, you know, 10,000 deaths from COVID in Australia uh, mm. in 2022. Um, and, you know, there's always this, you know, constant narrative that it's like the flu. We need to start treating it like the flu. But in, in a really bad year for the flu, you have a thousand people dying. Yep. Um, and so just to put that in perspective, this, this is not the flu. The other thing is, when the narrative turns entirely away from transmission with, you know, a collective shrug that there's nothing we can do about transmission, when we clearly know there are things we can do about transmission, um, uh, you know, we we just never talk about long COVID mm. and the effect of, of COVID on um, 
you know, a significant number of people who get COVID even after vaccination, these prolonged uh, symptoms. And, and we may well have just, if we accept this kind of degree of transmission, and that's not even kind of with potential new variants coming that, that will be more troublesome. If we just accept this level of transmission, we're essentially accepting kind of a higher level of illness and disability in society, uh, higher strain on the hospital system, kind of in a permanent, as a permanent fixture. Um, and, and that may well be the decision we make, uh, but then we, we need to kind of have other things in place that help to um, protect the healthcare system that help to protect healthcare workers mm-hmm. and and help to deal with this this kind of tsunami of disability that we're going to have related to long COVID. Yeah, I, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, it seems as though we were really, really struggling with just the capacity of our healthcare system in many regards before the pandemic hit. So the idea that we would sort of reset it now at this new level with new levels of requirements especially around chronic disease where things are, you know, many chronic disease sufferers will, will tell you how you know, difficult it is to navigate the health system pre-pandemic. It, it seems as though the investment required there would be very substantial. Yeah, well, you know, so you have in, in Victoria today, uh, you know, it's 400 hospital beds with mm. patients with COVID in them. And that is definitely something that the healthcare system can manage. Yep. 400 beds. But but the challenge is it's 400 beds in addition to all the patients they would have had there anyway. And it's not like there are a lot of beds sitting empty at any given time. So if you're saying that for the for the future, we're always going to have this additional 200 to 400 people in hospital for a new disease, well, then there has to be some increased capacity of the healthcare system to, to deal with that or an acceptance that we're just going to have less ability to care for other things. I mean, this isn't going to be COVID being over isn't with COVID going away. Mm. So, um, so there needs to be adaptation uh, if we're going to allow, you know, this kind of level of transmission to continue to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. But one of the things we heard uh, very early on when it was us looking at other countries was this common sort of idea that when transmission was happening, the chance of more variants popping up, potentially ones that were problematic, potentially ones that weren't, but, you know, we never really knew was something that, you know, we, I think, as a country, we were kind of throwing the ethics book at a lot of other parts of the world saying, well, you know, you really need to deal with this because these variants are going to come out if you keep doing this. But we, we seem to now be on exactly that path. Is that, is that how you, you see it? Um, it? It does seem like we're in this period where everyone wants the pandemic to be over. Uh, and that's from both from a public perspective, but politi- particularly a political one. So politically, um, people want the pandemic to be over. Saying the pandemic's not over is not going to win you an election. Mm. Um, so I think we're in this period of time where, uh, you know, getting back to business as usual is a priority for many of the, the um, decision makers. Uh, and so that's, that's just what we're going to see. Um, and, and, and it may be that the pandemic is over and that Omicron is the last big wave and that things do get back to normal. That is not an impossibility, even with newer variants, if they're not more virulent, if they're not more transmissible, they will just disappear or not be a huge issue. Uh, we'll need to continue to get boosted, et cetera. But maybe this is just going to dissolve into normality. I'm not sure. Um, but I think what's more likely is it won't. And over the next period of a few years where we continue to have waves coming through when there's new variants or waning immunity, uh, and we continue to this have this kind of grumbling level of really unacceptable um, sickness, death, and long-term disability, um, that we finally kind of realize that living well with COVID means adapting to it Mm. and not just trying to pretend like transmission doesn't matter, not like just trying to pretend that it's over. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, there's that phrase we hear a lot that, you know, people are tired of COVID, they're tired of these things. And sadly, um, COVID, the, the disease is not tired at all. <laughs> in fact, it's kind of revving up. It's it's doing well worldwide at the moment. In terms of, you know, where to from here, Nancy, I mean, if you if you had control of the situation here and and what we do, I mean, what, what would be your recommendations for for what we should do going forward, especially coming into term two for school and winter? 
First of all, um, I, 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 everyone needs to get boosted. And I think that that is a huge challenge. Um, you know, we now have uh, two thirds of eligible people having mm. boosted in Victoria, but it's taken an extremely long time to get there. Um, there's talk about ending the vaccinated economy, and I understand uh, the goal for that. But by not requiring the booster, it's led to this kind of lower uptake. We definitely see that in um, WA, where the booster was mandated. They've had much higher uptake. They've had, you know, much better outcomes, uh, you know, of the of the Omicron wave. And a large part of that is because they delayed until they had a sufficient proportion of their population boosted. Um, so that's number one. We've got to get boosted. Uh, that temporarily protects people from transmission, not long term, but definitely it helps protect people from serious um, COVID-19. So that's really, really critical. You, you just, I don't get that that's a seem, you know, I know vaccination is important and has been prioritized by all levels of government, but you just don't really sense the push for it um, that there really should be. And uh, while I, I understand in part why um, there's a discussion about the opening up of the, uh, so ending the vaccinated economy, um, just because, you know, the majority of people are protected, um, I do think that it will will never get to the level of boosting that it would be ideal for us to get to. Mm. Um, so that's the one thing I'd make sure everybody was boosted. Um, the second thing is I, I would, you know, keep protections that don't lead to restrictions, don't kind of stop us from doing things that we want and need to do. Uh, and, and the particular one is mask wearing. So um, I'm sure like me, you, you've seen that um, nobody's wearing masks anymore. Uh, and even in public transit, uh, where they're supposed to wear masks, they're not wearing masks. And, you know, I think that that's unfortunate because uh, it's very challenging to wear masks when no one else is. I've experienced that myself uh, at my workplace where, you know, you just have no one wearing masks and, and you really feel social pressure to take yours off. The other thing is, um, so, so I understand kind of the relaxation of mandates because mandates are very heavy handed tactic to, um, to, uh, have to influence behavior. Um, but similar to, um, you know, if we stopped seatbelt mandates, um, there would be less seatbelt wearing. Um, so I think that that's what's happened, you know, in an accelerated pace to mask wearing. And that's unfortunate because that really could help transmission and protect all of us if there was mask wearing in, mm. in public indoor spaces. Uh, having said that, it's not going to happen. So given that that's not, not going to unlikely to happen, um, I think people wearing masks need to stop wearing surgical masks and cloth masks and start needing to wear higher quality, well-fitted masks that are more likely to be able to protect them, even if others aren't wearing masks. So that's important. And if people aren't going to be wearing masks, if that's what we've decided we're okay with, we really need to start focusing on making sure people have access to clean air. You know, we didn't get rid of cholera because of uh, treatment. We got rid of cholera as a public health problem by cleaning the water, by making sure people had access to clean water. We all think of that as uh, normal now. It wasn't normal uh, in the past. So now we need to start thinking about clean, safe indoor air. And that's what we need to make sure, that's what we need to insist upon. We need to insist upon that yeah. in, in restaurants, in our workplace, in any shared spaces that there's been attention to ventilation, that people know what the ventilation is like and have taken steps to improve ventilation if possible. So, so these are the kind of things that need to happen. They're not happening because we've decided collectively that transmission is not something that we're going to be concerned about anymore. Um, but if we're not concerned about transmission, you know, we're just going to have more more disease. Yeah. I mean, see, I think they're, they're sensible things. And uh, I, you know, in my past, not long, not so long ago, worked in a building not far from yours and, and hated the internal air environment of that building long before COVID. It was disgusting, you know, gave me headaches. It was just not a pleasant environment. So, you know, the, the whole thing around air quality and so forth, especially for kids in schools and so forth, goes well beyond transmission of, of aerosol, aerosol viruses, you know, not droplets, aerosol viruses. Um, into other areas of gen general health that we will benefit from. So I think, you know, we're, we're setting ourselves up for the future if we take this seriously. It's not just about COVID. And I think the mask wearing is one where it's, we're not going to the moon here. They're, um, they're relatively simple measures. But sadly, we've, we've removed the mandates without any education campaign whatsoever 
with regards to their value. And that's, that is a big part of the problem, I think. And you mentioned seatbelts, but you know, we've had many education campaigns over the years with regards to the value of seatbelts. And I, th- I suspect even if we did remove the mandates, we wouldn't be getting the 5% seatbelt wearing consistent with yeah. what we're getting with mask wearing. So, you know, education counts. It does help, um, but we're not doing it. Nancy Baxter, great to talk to you again. We might check in with you again in three or four months. Hopefully, um, we'll have nothing to talk about and COVID will be over. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I, my worst case scenarios will not come to pass. We will not have a new, more virulent, transmissible variant, uh, which is, you know, the big fear, right? Yeah, indeed. Well, I think the better we set up for that now, the the better off we'll be. Um, it's health ins- house insurance, right? They've always said, you know, don't try and insure your house once it's on fire. <laughs> insurance companies don't want to know you. Um, thanks so much, Nancy. Uh, take care of yourself, and we'll chat again soon. All right. Bye, Shane. That was Professor Nancy Baxter, the head of the School of Global and Population Health at the University of Melbourne. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and we're very excited to have our next guest in the studio with us. It's a rare occurrence in the post-2020 period. We have Dr. Leah Beecham. She is a neuropharmacologist from the Barnum Neurotherapeutics Lab at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. It's quite a mouthful there, Leah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the studio. It's good to have you in here. Thank you for having me. Um, now, I saw something really cool uh, that you, you, know, you guys were doing there at the Flory with regards um, to some of the issues around Parkinson's disease, and I couldn't go past it. So I thought we, you know, we had um, we had a, a spot this weekend, and you know, Chris and I didn't realise that it was Easter. So we, <laughs> everyone's <laughs> like, "No, I don't want to come in." Just wasn't paying attention. No, we're paying attention, <laughs> and so um, we thought, what, "What a great opportunity!" But first of all. Let's just um, go back a little bit for everyone. Parkinson's disease, just give us a quick rundown of what that is and what that looks like today. Yeah, so Parkinson's is uh, the second most common neurodegenerative disease um, in the world, just behind Alzheimer's disease for Mm -hmm. prevalence. And uh, it's traditionally thought of as a movement disorder because what we see are people with severe tremors, they change the way they walk and um, it's quite debilitating. But what we're actually realising is that the disease has really been going on for 10 to 20 years before this tremor occurs. So we're trying to move away from this, um, I guess, concept of it being a movement disorder because it is much more than a movement disorder. And that's kind of where my research lies in the the early stages of disease that aren't associated with those tremors and changes in movement control. Yeah, fascinating. So, I mean, 20... Do you say 30, 20 to 30 years? It's estimated up to 20, but it could be longer. We know right. there's – so by the time you you present to a doctor with a tremor, which is how you have to be diagnosed, yep. you've lost up to 60% of those neurons in your basal ganglia, which is wow. the area of the midbrain that controls movement basically. Yeah. So those dopamine neurons have, have died and they've been dying for a very long time. But you have a lot of redundancy in that area, so you don't really see those gross motor impairments until you have quite substantial loss. But by that point, is that's when we're picking people up clinically. Mm. It's too late. We're trying to design drugs that are neuroprotective, but we yep. can't protect what's already gone, and those yep. neurons are gone. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. And what, what's this, just give us an idea of the sort of age range that you know a person will present with tremors. So in Australia, um, the average... I guess the age you consider someone for a Parkinson's diagnosis is usually 60 to 65. But we know that one in five Australians who have Parkinson's presented before the age of 50. Wow. So we do have, it's not a disease of the elderly like we used to think. It is in fact a disease of the middle age and we need to start considering it that way. Yeah. So I'm just, you can see where I'm going here, like um, doing these numbers in my head. Like, you know, if we're going between sort of, you know, 50 and and 70, that means we're, we're getting it between 30 to 40. Yeah. And in that stage where things are starting, you said 60% by the time mm-hmm. we're getting a tremor. So when I'm at sort of 20% of that reduction in my 30s, perhaps, Potentially. I mean, what, is there anything that's happening to me physically at that point that, that – like manifests in a way I might notice? Yeah. So we, we have what's called the prodromal period. So it's basically just means pre-motor impairment. It's the early manifestations of disease. Mm. And there are a huge number of symptoms that occur in this. We have loss of sense of smell. Um, constipation is really common. Okay. You get uh, building anxiety and depression and mental health um, problems. So there's this real variety of symptoms. And we're never going to look for it. I'm not going to meet someone who's 40 and they've lost their sense of smell and say, oh, you've got Parkinson's. Mm. What we're looking at 
at is, and we're trying to understand is the concurrence of these symptoms. So someone who has um, something called REM sleep behavior disorder. So they basically, when they have REM sleep, they're no longer paralyzed. So they're thrashing out and hitting their partner in their sleep, basically. So that's a huge, uh, I guess, harbinger of Parkinson's disease. So if you've got that and you've got loss of smell and you have increased anxiety, red flags are starting to go off for us as scientists that we think that you've probably got the the early manifestations of the disease. And presumably there you need the the whole gamut of those. I mean, if if you think about those, some of the symptoms you've, you've talked about there, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, Chris, but I've had about half of them yeah. for, for a while. Um, mm. I mean, I haven't hit anyone in my sleep, I don't think. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like there's 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 quite a few of those that, you know, anxiety, constipation, yeah, we've, you know, yeah. they're pretty common, right? That's, I mean, they can be yeah. consistent. In fact, if you if you look at someone with something like endometriosis, you've got half of those right there. Exactly. You know? Yeah, so that's that, really what makes our job very difficult. So what I guess my PhD was focused on the um, olfactory deficits specifically because while having a loss of smell could be representative of a myriad of health problems or just general loss of smell as you age, what I really need to understand is the biological basis. What's driving that, you know, specifically in Parkinson's disease? And if that is a certain, um, I guess, biological cascade, can I measure it? Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So if uh, if you've got reason to believe or if a, if a clinician has reason to believe that, you know, I may be suffering from Parkinson's mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, what what is the test that he's done at that point to find out? So people are often shocked by this. It's um, basically you're asked to do a few um, movements yep. and a neurologist decides if you have Parkinson's disease or not. So it's uh, we have something called the UPDRS. It's the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. And it has uh, it's basically a checklist. You know, it, do you have a, a unilateral tremor? Is it down one side? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is your resting tremor between four to six hertz? Things like that. So they're um, we diagnose you basically in the first stage with Parkinsonism because there are a lot of things that cause those. And then what they do is they say, okay, do you have a genetic um, underlying um, cause that we know is linked to Parkinson's, things like that? So those are supportive criteria. And then we have exclusion criteria. Have you had multiple um, concussions right. and head injuries yeah, right. or have you been exposed to a toxin that we know drives Parkinson's? But at that, so at that point, if let's just say that it's earlier, so if mm-hmm. I've had some symptoms, I've gone in, they've gone, yeah, looks like you might have this. Um, is the how consistent is the time frame? So you're saying 10, 20 years. How consistent is the time frame before it really gets bad? Does everybody have this sort of you know the same period of time? Or might, might I have a? Is there a faster version? Or a, there is. So oh, some good, people great. have more progressive forms. <laughs> mm. um, it's it's really difficult, and you will never, as it stands, you will not get a Parkinson's diagnosis until you have three, at least three of those um, hallmark motor right. symptoms sure. because it is so varied and we're really, it's a, an area of research that's quite up and coming. It's sort of the last 10 years we've really started to hone in on prodromal Parkinson's. Yeah. Now, how much is, um, let me think about how I want to ask this, a lot of the symptoms you're talking about don't take people out of the workforce if they are well catered for. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there are many situations where, you know, I can imagine some of these things would be, be problematic mm-hmm. um, if you're in workforces where, you know, those sorts of neurological changes weren't sort of accepted as part of normal life and aging and yeah. et cetera. So presumably people can can manage this for, for a quite protracted period. Are, are there pharmaceuticals? I mean, this is your area, but mm. are there pharmaceuticals at this point that can help with that over that longer term? Yeah, so once you um, have the the motor symptoms sort of budding, we would give you dopamine replacement therapy. Okay. So it's symptomatic only. It doesn't modify the progression of the disease. You're still going right. to get sick and they are going to stop working. These drugs are not long-term drugs, so they often work sort of for five to ten years. Okay. And then we sort of get into the territory of deep brain stimulation. If you um, qualify for that, there are certain criteria mm. and things. But Unfortunately, that's the best line of defense we have yeah. is, is just replacing the dopamine that's um, been lost and then letting the disease run its course. Yeah, interesting. Now, uh, one of the reasons why I saw the work you were doing is, of course, you were looking also at this idea of what COVID's doing. And I, the second you started talking about changes in smell, I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, you know, what's going on there? Because, you know, whenever someone says, oh, it's just like the flu, I'm like, well, I don't know about the <laughs> flu. But, you know, I thought smell was a neurological function. Is that right? I mean, smell yeah. is a neurological function, right? It is. Happening. So I think 
I, I wrote a review on this very early in the pandemic because I was um, doing everything I physically could to avoid writing my thesis. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, I started to notice there were a lot of case reports coming out of the UK of patients um, who had very severe hyposmia, so loss of sense of smell. Right. And it kind of, obviously, I'm interested in olfaction. And early on, it was being dismissed as that. It was, they have inflammation in their nose. It's just a cold. Everyone loses their sense of smell. And I thought, yep, yeah, that's fair. But then more reports were coming out that six months later, my patients haven't gotten better. Their sense right. of smell has never come back. Yeah. You no longer have acute inflammation in your nasal epithelium at that point. And what we do know about this nasal epithelium is it's a really special area of the body because you actually have neurons that project directly down from your brain into that epithelium. They're exposed to the environment and they are not protected by the blood-brain barrier. I did not know that. Yes. So it's one of the only areas of your brain, your central nervous system is directly exposed to the environment. Is that wow. why so many nasal therapies for things like migraines and so forth work so rapidly? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I know something, Chris. I've learned something. This shows yeah. great. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a direct route into the brain, um, which is uh, why some recreational drugs also are decided uh, to be. For it. Chris, yeah. Chris didn't know <laughs> that. No <either>. one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fascinating. So that means, you know, that part is really, I mean, I, I always thought that the one of the most fascinating, thing, fascinating things about the eye is that you can see the vascular system directly. And that's, yeah. you know, the future is going to be about that. I guarantee Absolutely it. You is. heard it here first, folks, but, you know, not first, but, you know, other people have been we talking about We can actually it. diagnose Parkinson's through the eyes as well. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. But I had no idea about these, these neuronal sort of aspects mm. of, of the nose. So what does that mean in terms of, you know, people with COVID and Parkinson's and connectivity there? So there is a lot of research about um, people who already have Parkinson's disease. Um, COVID seems to make their symptoms worse, but that could be due to stress. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. They're losing their routine. Routine is so important with diseases like Parkinson's. You have to take your, your medication at certain times and things. So there's a lot of sort of noise in the data, I guess. But what I'm more interested in is if you've got long-term loss of smell and there's a paper that's come out of the UK that's shown that it's actually structural loss in the brain. So they did MRI, they had MRIs of people before COVID hit, they were just doing an MRI population study. There was about uh, up to a thousand people who then went on to get COVID and a thousand who didn't. They re-scanned the same people. So they were their own controls. And they showed that uh, four of the regions um, of the brain that had neurodegeneration were olfactory centres. They were in the primary, secondary and tertiary olfactory centres. And it was neurodegeneration. These areas had, the the grey matter had it's gone. Wow. So what that suggests to us is that we're actually seeing structural changes and that's concerning for obvious reasons, but we know that there's um, something called the dual hit hypothesis in Parkinson's disease. So the viral hypothesis of Parkinson's has been around for a long time. So in 1918, when the world was hit by the Spanish flu, there was a about a threefold incidence in Parkinson's disease from children who caught the Spanish flu. So we, wow. we were seeing these effects in the 60s and 70s, this increased prevalence of wow. Parkinson's wow. in these people. So the theory is that you get a virus that somehow triggers neuroinflammation in the brain, which we know is what's happening in COVID. And then your your brain is basically primed then. So when you age, which is a neurological hit, our brains don't do as well. If you get another virus, if you have a concussion, if you're exposed to pollution like we all are in an industrialised world, your brain is ready and it's primed and it overreacts and you get faster neurodegeneration. It accelerates that process. Wow. So that's the kind of... the theory we have at the moment that we're starting to work on is COVID actually aging our brains and based on how much out of that UK study of neurodegeneration there was it suggests that it was about a 10 year increase in brain aging from from COVID. This doesn't sound good. It's not good. Yeah, it's not I, I, good. I think it, it comes back to, you know, this sort of, um, you know, sometimes I use the term gaslighting of people into thinking this is all mild, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what you're talking about, I had not heard that about the Spanish flu and that, you know, that's that thing of a 50-year delay in or what is it, 40-year delay. I'm yeah. not good at maths these days. Um, but, you know, 40 to 50-year delay in mm-hmm. terms of us seeing the signal from, from what's going on there. Absolutely. And, you know, we just heard from Nancy Baxter about, long COVID and some of these these features and looking looking forward in terms of things like Parkinson's, we may not see the effects of this this pandemic now for another 30, 40 years. No, it's and it's going to play out um, over a very long amount of time. And we consider Parkinson's disease a pandemic anyway. It's doubled yep. in the last 20 years and it's going to double again in the next 20. And that's before we even take into account COVID. And even things like dementia, if this has the ability to even bump up those numbers, even by 0.5%, it's going to be disastrous for our healthcare system. Mm. These are very long, very expensive diseases and yeah. we need to be prepared and we need to be putting into more funding to researching um, treatments for these diseases because we may see a massive wave of them in the future. Yeah. Now, just before we let you go, Leah, um, 
with regards to people generally, you know, anyone who may be experiencing some of the symptoms you mentioned and stuff, I mean, what is the pathway for them? Like, do they just rock up to their GP? I mean, this seems like a, I mean, GPs are fabulous. Yes. But boy, do they have a lot of shit to detect. Yeah. You know, I mean, to be fair to them, you know, like they can't pick up everything. No, they can't. So, so what, what is the scenario there? Because I can imagine there's probably a lot of, you know, misdiagnoses going around with regards to the early stuff anyway. Yeah, definitely. So what we're really pushing is uh, awareness awareness of your own body, basically. Mm. So if you've noticed that you've had a decline in your sense of smell, go and talk to your GP about it. They may not know, but if you notice it's uh, come on very quickly or if it's getting worse, push for your own health and push that you want to see a neurologist because neurologists are aware of things like this. And if these are symptoms that are still associated with um, COVID and not necessarily Parkinson's, we do have long COVID clinics all over the city now um, and you can get referrals to them. And these have teams of um, respiratory and cardiac and neuro and everything you can imagine no matter what your symptoms are, try and get yourself into a long COVID clinic because then we can monitor you. Yep. And um, that's the, unfortunately the best that we can do at the there moment because we don't understand it. So take home message, your brain is in your nose. Your brain don't is in your that. nose. Don't uh, forget treat that. Treat your nose well. <laughs> treat your nose well. <laughs> Leah Beecham, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. Uh, it's great to hear about all this research. I think um, many of us have been aware of you know some of the aspects of Parkinson's for many, many years, but um, hearing about that longevity of this disease and the early stage stuff that's not detected is, yeah, it's it's a worry, but it's also good that we know that that's happening and then we can start yeah. looking after people earlier on and and keep them you know highly functioning for as long as possible into their Absolutely. lives. Yep, Thank thanks you so for much, Leah. Me. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and when we come back, uh, Chris KP and I are going to talk about an experiment that's fifty years in the making, maybe even more. Chris is looking at me like there's something wrong. (laughs) This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, uh, Chris KP, I have been uh, looking at something. I've had this story for a couple of weeks, actually, Mm -hmm. but it keeps getting bumped because more interesting things, dare I say, have walked in the door. That is a big call, but carry (laughs) on. That's a big call. But look, uh, this is something that uh, I wanted to ask you. If you're in the lab and I said to you, look, mate, um, that's some nice samples you've collected out in the field there. Can you just shove them in a cabinet and hang on to them for 50 years? Because, you know, there'll be people in 50 years that'll be better at this research than you and have better equipment. So is that cool? I'd, I'd be disappointed, but I reckon I could throw that back you and say, you know, hi, I've gathered all this stuff, but I'm a bit busy. Can I just chuck it in here for a while? <laughs> we'll get we'll get round to it. We'll get to it. Well, yeah, indeed. Well, look, um, one of the things I wanted to mention today was, you know, we're, we're in this period at the moment. If, if people are on social media, they're probably seeing some of this, but we're in this period where we've hit the sort of the 50 year anniversary, mm. a lot of mm. the Apollo, the original Apollo missions to the moon. And I think, um, we just hit the one where I think it was yesterday, 50 years since Apollo 16 took off. You know, they'll be land on the moon 50 years ago in a couple of days, if that makes mm. sense. Um, and, you know, this is kind of cool stuff. You know, it's, it, it was amazing. It is, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that I reckon that there's, you know, obviously there is a range of levels of interest, but mm. I think that for a lot of people, you know, anyone under the age of 50, for example, or indeed probably 40, <laughs> it's just normal. Yeah. We did stuff, we went to the moon. Moving yeah. on. Yeah, moving on. It's, it's, it's easy We're, to forget that, no, no, that's a really big, big deal. deal. Really big deal. So one of the things that happened back then, and this is where, you know, I asked you the original question about you putting some of your, your samples aside, was when um, two of the astronauts, one of which we've had on the show, Gene Cernan, mm. and um, Jack Schmidt went up to the moon on Apollo 17 in 1972. Um, now, Jack Schmidt was a geologist, so, you know, knew a lot about rocks. They collected some really interesting samples, but some of the samples were part of what was called the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Program, the ANSA initiative, right? Okay. Cool, you got that? And the idea behind this was they would collect these samples, store them, and at a future time when we have better technology to analyze them, open them up. So hang on, is this like, it's like you know, cryogenics for samples? It's like at yep. some point in the future, <laughs> we don't know when, yep. we don't know why, but at some point there'll be something that will make this make yeah. more sense. And we need a reason to open up. So what they sure. did was they, they collected multiple samples and they sealed them in these, these vacuum tubes. And some of these samples were opened up when they got back to Earth. But there's one sample, ANSA, remember the mm-hmm. Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis, ANSA sample 73001, was sealed in a vacuum in the vacuum of um, the environment on the moon. So remember, the moon surface, you know, there's no atmosphere. Mm. It is a vacuum. So what better place 
to seal something up mm. than while you're actually on the moon. Very low temperature, basically yes. no atmosphere at all. And there were reasons for doing this, and the idea was there'd be certain um, sort of volatiles, so things that evaporate at slightly higher temperatures that might be sitting around on the moon surface or, you know, in the soil there, you know, the dust, the moon dust, and you would be able to collect those and seal them into these tubes. Now, of course, if you raise the temperature at all or you raise the pressure, they would evaporate, just like, Mm. you know, CO2 and other things Mm -hmm. evaporate um, into gases, and you would lose them. But if you sealed them up carefully... Um, while you're on the moon, you could bring them back in that container. And what you could then do is store those in a special vacuum environment here on Earth for 50 years, <laughs> so, dare I say. So, so, so the samples we're interested in here, these, these are at the point of gathering. Yep. They were not gaseous. Nope. They're presumably solid things, yep. which could either, under the right conditions, either liquefy or sublime into yep. gas. That's, yep. that's what we're trying to pull out now. Yep. And they're core samples. So these are basically, right. think of a hollow tube. Yep. And you hammer it down. Yep. Gets filled up with stuff. Yep. You don't exactly know what you've got. Mm. And seal it up. How, how deep? Uh, I think it's about a foot. Not, okay. not a lot. Not a lot. Sure. But, you know, they hammer it in. They, you know, they, they weren't drilling. So <laughs> there's a manual process. Um, and you, you seal this thing up and you bring it home. Now, the thing is, you've got to have the foresight to say, you know what? There's going to be analysis tools in decades to come mm. that leave what we've got now for dead. And we would like to utilize those at some stage. And so they've been hanging on to these things for, for quite a while. And the idea would be that you would open them up and you would measure them. And there's a curator, a guy named uh, Ryan Ziegler. I can imagine this guy. I, I wonder whether he was a bit like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. You know, like, <laughs> keep away from those samples. Yeah. Do not touch those samples. No one is opening those what is samples. The, what is the label on them? What yeah. does it say? Not <laughs> to, to be open to, for 50 years? Break glass <laughs> in case of emergency. Um, <laughs> or, or, more importantly... Break seal if you're intending to go back to the moon. Ah, is that it? And so, you know, a couple of years from now, mm. um, the new space launch system, which they they attempted fueling of just uh, mm. yesterday, actually. So, and there were some leaks. So, you know, they're working on that. But um, this will be going back to the moon and presumably um, a, a different location. So they'll be going to a pole rather than the equa- equatorial regions. But they will be able to collect new samples. And so, it's really interesting to be able to see what's what's going to be there with modern-day analysis tools. So I, I wonder how the, the thought process went, because obviously going back means an opportunity for Paris, as you say. Yeah. But I'm also wondering if, if there was ever any um, debate in, you know, in NASA internally about, no, we're, we're not ready yet. We, yes, we've got some new techniques, yes, but the, it's, there'll be more. And when you open these things, I don't know how many shots you get at this. I'm assuming not a lot more than one. No, no. So, well, you know, you want to be really sure you're getting what you want out of this. And, and it's, it's interesting you said it because they had to build a specialized piece of gear to make sure that when they open them, those tiny little potential amounts of gases mm. were collected yeah. for spectroscopic analysis. And that piece of gear they called the manifold, nice, which sort of sounds of like something out of the Matrix. Um, but basically, you know, this was something where they would be able to do really specific work on it. I mean, the other thing they managed to do um, just recently before these samples were opened, um, they were opened just at the end of March. So, you know, really cool stuff. Mm. But they took CT scans right. um, of, the of, of the container yeah, to nice. see, you know, what have we got in here? Yeah. Did they actually get some stuff? <laughs> what if this is empty? So, you know, they had that sort of ready to go. So, you know, this this analysis is now occurring. So they've they've opened these things up. They're collecting the material. This meticulous process for sort of you know cracking this bad boy open. <laughs> I have this image of I think somewhere in my shed I've got this old pack of Slazenger tennis balls which I never opened, and it's got that seal. You're like, Tsh. yes, oh yes. yes. <laughs> well, the same sort of thing is going to happen here, and they have to collect every tiny little morsel of gas or anything that comes out, and then. Examine it. And as you say, there must have been questions as to when they were going to do this. You know, I, I have an image of them all in the room one day and someone's going, look, the, the, the Spectrum Master 5000 has just come out. We should do yes. it. And someone's yes. going, nah, nah, let's wait for the 7000. Well, I also reckon there would have been that. There would have been that, um, that, that moment of, okay, what's, let's do every single possible thing we can do before we open it. Yeah. CT it, X-ray it, damn MRI. It. Let's do whatever we can do to this. Yeah, just to get as much intel as you can. Squeeze it. It doesn't matter if ninety-five percent of these tests are zero. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just do something. Wow. Yeah. So it's cool stuff. So anyway, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to mention this was more just that that longevity of science. The idea mm. that some really innovative individuals, yes, you know, fifty years ago said, you know what, the analysis of this is going to be better done later. We should hang on to it to a point where we can actually do more. And so they kept it for this long. And now, to be fair, we do have the technological capabilities that, to do that well. I suspect that would have been even more the case or a more, a more heightened case given that we didn't go back. 
Yeah, like there's a big, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a stop. Yeah, so they're going, okay, we're, if we're not doing this, if that's what's happening, then those samples are under lock and key. Yeah, yeah, you know that stuff we, one, you know? yeah, maybe that was the case. Maybe it was, you know that stuff we kept for next month? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're going to now keep it for 50 years. <laughs> yes. We're all going to be long gone, but, you yeah. know, um, we will keep it. So it'll be interesting, nice. and I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not with the new missions to, yes, to exactly. the moon and to Mars, whether there will be similar propositions around storing samples and so forth. And I suspect you know, a lot of this stuff is so well thought out that you would hope that mm-hmm. there would be some of that. Or, or we might do what the world has come back to, of course, and just say, no, we need it now. We need it right now. <laughs> We're not waiting. We need it now. <laughs> come on. Surely we've learned. I'm bored. Surely we've learned I, better I haven't looked at my phone for three minutes. I'm bored. <laughs> I need it now. Give me now. So we'll see. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. All right, Chris KP, let's uh, finish off that news segment. What do you got? Uh, well, so you know what it's like when, you know, so I'm, I'm watching TV or whatever and I say, you know, hey, Dr. Shane, what was the name of that guy? He was in that. He's in that movie with the thingy and the there's a big red whatever, and you look at me blankly as you are now. I, I don't. I usually have the answer to that because I <laughs> well, worked in a video library in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so, so right, right place, also right time. <laughs> but if if I then said, you know, he was also in uh, Mad About You, right? And suddenly now you're oh, and you yeah, yeah. your connections so, there. Yep. It, you know, I've forgotten what it is. But if you then say, did he do whatever? Then my brain's kicking into gear too. So there's a, a very interesting study that came out recently looking at the act of forgetting, mm. as opposed to the act of remembering. And that's an interesting thing because if you think about it, if you sort of go, okay, why do we? What happens to your brain when you forget something? There's kind of two obvious answers. Either stuff just gets emptied out or pushed out. Yep. So you know, I I did have this fantastic memory of um, the key grip on Back to the Future Two, but that got pushed out <laughs> by you know. I don't know, my phone number. So, so <laughs> yeah. clearly my brain's not very organised. Or, or, or the kebab, the kebab shops. Exactly. So that's one theory. The other theory, of course, is that maybe, in fact, um, it's just your brain over time just resets. It goes, yeah, this bit of the brain, right. we don't need that later on. So we'll just hit the clear button, wipe that out, ready for something else. Is now. there no third option where it's yes, stored somewhere and I just can't get to it? Well, they're kind of. Because that's what I want to believe. Well, sort of. But yeah. the great thing about this study is, in my opinion, is not that, potentially. It's the way they went about studying it. Uh, and if you don't know about uh, about nematodes um, and uh, C. elegans and the fact that they are used for brain studies, then you need to find out about this. So basically, you can, A, the worms are a very easy, simple neurological design, mm. you know, compared to the human brain. So they're, they're overstocked, helpful. don't they, with neurons for their size? They have a lot for the, for, for yeah. the size of the animal, yep. yeah. Um, and yeah, But you can track neural activity really easily and you can track, you know, gene expression stuff. So they're, they're a useful animal. They're very, very commonly used in neurological studies. So what I love about this, though, is what they did with these worms is they taught them <laughs> to identify a smell oh, yeah. associated with an infectious bacteria that will make the worm sick. So they're basically going, right. hey, if you smell this, don't go there. And they taught the worms this, and they were good at it, right? With the little worm classrooms? How, I how do you not, teach I, a worm? I, I don't know exactly. And that's, I'm picturing worms sort of marching towards some line in a dish and then just turning around en masse and marching going back. back. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, okay. But, of course, that's only the case with the worms that were taught this. The worms that weren't taught that oh, just right. went and got sick yeah. because they didn't know, um, which is the cruel Because the other worms science. didn't tell them. No, exactly. Because they don't have mouths. Selfish. Selfish little worms. Yep. What they then found, though, is that over time, of course, some of the worms that had been taught had forgotten, hadn't they? Ah, they'd forgotten. And so, again, they go in, they do a bit of uh, a bit of gene expression analysis to see what genes are going on when they're remembering, when they're not remembering, when they were never taught. Likewise, um, what uh, what are the neural pathways looking like inside these worms? And what they found is, to your, to your point, there is, in fact, a third state that is somewhere between um, having it wiped clean and having it just shoved aside. There's a hmm. state. And, and this is not a surprise because if you don't know something, the experience of knowing it is quite profoundly different to being reminded of something you did yeah, know. Absolutely. And the biggest difference is time. So what they, if you want to teach and get this, you want to teach a worm to avoid a, an infectious bacteria, takes a few hours, hmm. three or four hours. That's pretty quick. Yeah. But if they already knew it and they've forgotten it, they had them they were reminding them in three minutes. Wow. Was it like, oh, sorry, my bad, gotcha. Yep. Thanks for the tip. I remember now. <laughs> so there you go. So nematodes Super teaching fast. us how we forget. Yeah, I love it. And it comes back to this nose neuron thing. 
Yeah, because you smell sp- something and it gives you, you, you remember something from your past? So good. It's all in the nose. So quick. I think I'm going to be all about the nose for the, you know, I don't have an overly pleasant nose to look at, I guess. <laughs> but I'm going to be all about the nose. People are going to hear me talking about the nose. It's in the top the- two noses in the studio. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Now, I saw a, I saw a very disturbing uh, thing uh, in the paper during the week here. I said the paper because I'm old. Mm-hmm. It was online. Um, and the title was, A Comet That Dwarfs the ACT oh, yes. is Heading Our Way. I thought, hello. Was so that bigger mean? or more important than the ACT? So uh, <laughs> it dwarfs the <laughs> ACT in hot air. Um, anyway, I, uh, so I quickly looked it up because I thought, shit, this could be bunker time. And so I looked up the NASA article that this is ripped well off from, of course, and it said, you know, Hubble confirms the largest comet nucleus ever seen. Um, it's 129 kilometers uh, wide. They've done some very amazing mm. magical optics to work this out because, of course, even though this thing is a very long way away at the moment, it's so large that it's got a bit of a gaseous coma around it. You know, oh, really? that glow? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so when you look at something and you see it, you say, okay, that's how big it is, but you've got to subtract the glow yes. and get back to the bit that's shining in the middle. And they've done some really fancy stuff to, nice. to do that, to work out it's about 129, could be 128, not sure. Okay. Um, but it's big and yeah. weighs a staggering 500 trillion tonnes. So heavy, it's dense. It's huge. Yeah. Um, now, the interesting thing, of course, and this is the part, the take home for everyone, is that in terms of that article that said, coming for you, mm-hmm. pretty much, um, it won't, in terms of its proximity to the sun, it's coming towards the sun. Right. Uh, by the year 20, 2031, I think, it will not even be within Saturn's orbit. Right. So it won't come that close. <laughs> and we are, uh, if newsflash, we are closer to the sun than Saturn. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot closer, actually. Yeah, yeah. So no, um, nothing to worry about there. But interesting, this is the biggest comet ever, ever seen. Um, and it gives more of a feeling that this thing called the Oort cloud, which is way out beyond yes. the, even the Kuiper belt, um, where we think all these comets might come from and, you know, could extend, you know, third of the way to the next star. Like, mm. we don't know. Mm. Um, this is sort of more day that says, well, maybe there's some damn big objects out there and we just don't know that they're there and they're really dim so we can't see them so we're not sure but um, anyway not coming for us no no need to worry it might might put on a cool display (laughs) which is a bit of a pity I'm thinking we'll be able to see it because if it's big and yeah, dense, yeah, and it's got cloud. Be amazing, yeah. Um, but anyway, they can see it now with Hubble, so that's pretty, nice. pretty cool. So, anyway, there we go, folks. We're going to have to hand over to the amazing team from Edit, who are lining up for the show in the studio right next door to us. We've got a beautiful window; we can see them through. Yes, it's COVID safe. It's, it's, like, very, it's like an aquarium. It's like an aquarium, and they're in it. Thank you so much for listening to Einstein the Gogo. Thank you, Chris KP, Always and to Dr. Lauren, who's on the line, to Nancy Baxter, and to Leah Beecham, who are our guests today. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great weekend. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will check in with you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein the Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.